week of February 20th, 2022. This is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 573, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling-Reich. And in Birmingham, Alabama, I'm Michael Giltz. You, you say that like you're almost sorry you're in Bur- Birmingham, Alabama. Well, perhaps. Um, I am sorry for what I said about the Super Bowl halftime show. We what? should have. I should apologize. As Rob Sheffield of Rolling Stone pointed out, the Super Bowl was late to hip hop, which has been dominating music. You know, certainly been a big, a big genre since the '80s, late '70s, and has dominated since the 1990s in terms of the American pop charts. Uh, but you know what? Until 2001, the Super Bowl halftime show had never even included a rock band. It took 2001, 40 years after rock and roll was, you know, 50 years, really, Elvis, before they got a rock band on the show. Really? So who did they have before? Well, they had pop people. They had up with people, of course, for a decade. You know, all those anonymous things that they had in the 70s and in the beginning. Then they started to realize they should have pop groups, but they were having like oldies acts and, you know, marching bands and things like that. Then they finally started to have pop people like, you know, Diana Ross. But it was always the older acts and nostalgia acts that seemed safe and very, you know, which is kind of what the hip hop groups were. You know, they've been around for 30 years. They're still getting hits. So, you know, Mary J. Blige is not exactly, you know yesterday's news and certainly not eminem either but they're they're certainly past their prime so you know what 50 years to get rock and roll there 30 years to get the 90s hip-hop onto the super bowl they're doing better they're getting better who was it in, in 2001 aerosmith and that's a funny first act to choose i would think for a rock act you know you would think they're a little more dangerous somehow <laughs> you know i guess by that time they had their movie ballads and they seemed less dangerous but you know, they're kind of an out there rock band. It's not like having Bruce Springsteen or something, which would seem a little safer to me or a little more mainstream. But there you go. So 50 so who, years who to get was rock. It, mm-hmm. Who was it before that? Again, like Diana Ross, Michael Jackson, but those were more contemporary. Before that, it was like, you know, be, you know, older, older pop acts past their prime they would have in the Super Bowl. And really, it was a, a lot of up with people, generic groups. It was marching bands, things that you just didn't, you know, were barely music. Well, you had Michael Jackson in 1993. I guess he's technically not rock. He's pop, right? He's I mean, not technically not rock. He's definitely not rock. He's not even really right, rock. Fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So apologize to the Super Bowl halftime show. They're doing better. And let's, you know, let's give a little salute again to Regina Hall, who I obnoxiously confused with Gina King. Hey, they do have the same first name. But she is, of course, the first African-American actress to win Best Actress from the New York Films Critics Circle. She did that in 2018 for the film Support the Girls. She was only the, the second person of color, woman of color, to win the Best Actress Award. The first one was Norma Aleandro, the Argentinian actress, for the official story. No Asians, no Hispanic or Latin people, no black people, just nobody. It's a lot of white people. It started from 1935, I think, with Garbo is when they began giving out the New York Film Critics Circle Award. So that was a long time coming. Uh, just the second woman of color overall, the first African-American. So she's had a great career. She's in the scary movie franchise, which I have not seen. She's was on Ally McBeal late in its run. She was in girls trip and the hate you give. And she's got the upcoming Amazon movie master about her becoming a master at a residence hall of a prestigious university. So she's had a great career. And of course, so has Regina King. Uh, who is a great actress, celebrated her birthday last month. And there's a really good profile of Marla Gibbs, the sassy talking 
uh, maid from the Jeffersons. She's, she turned like 90 or something, and they had a really nice profile in Hollywood Reporter about her career. And it turns out she gave Regina King her big break on her show, 227. So when she was producing that show, she, she cast her in that show and really liked her a lot. So bringing it full circle back to Regina King and Regina Hall. So, you know, uh, we make mistakes or we don't give people their due or we're a little awkward. We like to try and correct it in some way, shape, or form, right? Yeah, that's true. Yeah, uh, why not? You know, you have any apologies to make? Nope, not. Uh, hold on, let me just. <laughs> nope. <laughs> well, what just are we going to talk about? Check my yeah, list. Nothing. Got nothing. I'm perfect. <laughs> You're like the Larry David of podcasts. So, uh, what's uh, on the show this week? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, Michael, we are heading into uncharted territory. Not uncharted, okay? Not uncharted. No, uncharted. Because is the new film Uncharted the rare example of a video game turned movie that doesn't stink? Where's Ms. Pac-Man? That's what I want to know. Ms. Pac-Man, the movie. Anyway, just keep going. Well, what about Sonic the Hedgehog? But anyway, the, the reality is, is it Tom Holland, really? Is he just the biggest star in the world right now? That's probably more accurate. Mm-hmm. In TV, we see more fallout from the Zucker Cuomo scandal. The top communications exec, Allison Gollist, is exiting CNN, and insiders are explaining why. In film and TV, the Oscars have set up some COVID rules And they just don't make any sense. If you can figure them out, please explain them to us and better yet, explain them to the industry. On Inside Baseball, we dive deep into Viacom slash CBS. I love saying the Viacom slash CBS. Thankfully, we won't have to say that very much longer because it has big plans, including a new name, new windows, and a chance to boldly go where no one has gone before. All in an attempt to catch up with the big boys of streaming. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz. He's going to fill us in on the last week's box office. I almost said last weekend's box office, but last weekend's box office was- That's a mistake you should have had corrected about 10 years ago. (laughs) We covered the entire week's box office. We've been doing it for a long time. We're covering the week ending February 20th, even though we're recording this on Monday, February 21st. And the number one movie around the world is Uncharted, the Tom Holland video game turned flick. It's practically a video game begging to be made into a movie. It was Raiders from the get-go. It was a video game with a good, strong script, a good storyline, a lot of set pieces. It really... It really is a movie turned into a video game in a way, and they've been waiting for this for a long, long time. This is sort of an origin story, so you got the characters of the video game a little bit younger, how they met and stuff like that, but it's been a big success. It cost about $120 million to make, and it's grossed about $120 million worldwide this week, $117 million this week for the video game, which debuted in 2007. And it's now made about $140 million worldwide. Even more good news, Spider-Man No Way Home, that never got a release date in China. But Uncharted, it's got one. It's opening up on March 14th. So it will be in theaters for almost a month before it debuts in China. However, it has not debuted day and date on streaming. So there won't be the easiest access to uh, pirated copies, will there? No, not at all. That's right. And so it has a release date in China. So does The Batman with Robert Pattinson. That too has a release date in China. That comes out March 18th. 
you know, they need some movies. They want their box office to be back up there. It'll never be like it was in the heyday of, of 2019, but they are looking to get some more Hollywood product back on the screens in China. At number two around the world is the battle, the battle, the battle at Lake Changzhong, aka Watergate Bridge. This is the sequel to the first one. It's Lake Changzhong 2, I should say. It made $65 million this week. It's the big hit over the Chinese New Year. It's grossed $590 million worldwide. Also doing quite well is Too Cool to Kill, a Chinese comic about a would-be comic who gets caught up in a scam. It made $54 million this week. It's at $375 million worldwide. Sticking with China, lower down on the charts is Nice View, a thriller. That made about $34 million this week, and it's hitting the $200 million mark anytime now. That's it for the Chinese films. Just above Nice View is Death on the Nile. That made $41 million wor worldwide. It opened up in a lot of different territories. It's at $75 million in counting right now. It may it opened in China and made about $6 million. It opened like, I think, fourth in the Chinese market. It did very poorly. People in China were not waiting for Death on the Nile. Surely, Uncharted and the Batman will do much better. We'll have to see how much better. Certainly, they've got. I don't their even own see any. I don't even see any data coming in from China about uh, about it right now. Well, it made six million dollars over the over the That's since good. it opened yeah. up. No, it's not good. It's terrible. It was a very poor opening. Dead on arrival was one of the headlines in the trades. We oh, were talking okay. about Tom Holland at the top of the charts. Spider Man No Way Home. It's not done. It made another twenty six million dollars this week. One billion. $830 million worldwide. I think it passed up Avatar in the North American market for the all-time grosses. So <laughs> I bet they re-release Avatar when Avatar 2 is getting close, won't they? Oh, I'm sure they will, yes. Just to, just to prime the pump. They'll get two weeks in IMAX, at least. Sing 2, the animated flick, that made $23 million worldwide. It's at $333 million and counting. Marry Me, the Jennifer Lopez, Owen Wilson rom-com, that made $20 million. It's now at $37 million worldwide. That'll probably triple its budget. It's not setting the world on fire, but it's going to do just fine. Also doing well, good boy, good boy, is Channing Tatum and his film Dog. It cost about $15 million to make. It opened to $15 million, really 14, uh, uh, $18 million this opening weekend. So it made a little bit more than its budget. It got quite friendly reviews, I must say. It's about a, uh, a veteran taking a, a service, a dog, not a service dog, but a military dog on a trip. They both have PTSD and other issues from their time in service, and they both help each other bond and grow. And apparently it's better than that description sounds. Jackass Forever, that made another $14 million. That's at $61 million worldwide. That's great. It only costs $10 million to make, but it's a far cry from what the last two or three Jackass movies made, which was more like $150 million. So it's going to fall far short of that. Just another example of the box office pandemic era we live in. But that's ending, isn't it? We just got news from the UK. We nope. did. That, yes. Mm-hmm. That, that the queen is, is suffering from COVID. No, 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 no. Is yes, it, the, the, queen is, the queen has COVID, but she's not suffering. She has mild cold-like symptoms. At least that's what they're telling us. But the prime minister, Boris Johnson, announced all restrictions are done. All restrictions are going to be wiped that's away. That's it. Yep, the pandemic's no over. No, it's over. Thank you, the Boris. The pandemic is over. <laughs> that's right. Moonfall is still in the theater. So, so that disaster is still happening. $7 million it made. It's at $29 million worldwide scream is chugging along 135 million dollars worldwide and oh there's another film that opened in china it's me and my winter games 
It's an Olympic animated movie where I think colorful historic cartoon characters from Chinese history, uh, I, I assume more like, you know, Mickey Mouse, characters akin to that in Chinese culture rather than uh, historical figures who are animated. But anyway, it's an Olympic animated film made on the cheap. It's tied into the Olympic Games. It opened to $5 million. Why? Why would you wait until the Olympics were over to release this? Either release it two weeks before the Olympics or when the Olympics began, but to release it as the Olympics end makes zero sense to me. Zero. That's bad marketing. <laughs> I mean, well, I think there there must have been some kind of, uh, you know, hey, there's just no room because we have the Lunar New Year, you know. Yeah, but, but, but release it two weeks before. Yeah, you got the Lunar New Year going on while the Olympics are going on, but... It's all tied into the Olympics. So release it before the new year with the two week. Le I mean, it just, no, it makes no sense. And there weren't a lot of kid friendly movies other than Boonie Bears. There wasn't a ton going on for little kids. So I think there was room for a second film, but releasing it after the Olympics is just moronic. Release it a year in advance, you know, to promote it. Something, something doing it right after it ends when nobody cares about the Olympics for another six months. That seems crazy. People do care about Belfast. The Kenneth Branagh film hit $30 million worldwide, whereas the Liam Neeson actioner flick Blacklight, that is not doing so well. That is sort of dead on arrival at the box office, at least here in North America. It's, it's just made $7 million so far after two weeks. It's got the rest of the world to go. It didn't cost a lot of money, but we'll have to see. You probably saw some of these movies. Did you see The Cursed at Sundance? It's a Sundance horror flick. It opened up to $2 million. Uh, in France, the I animated flick Chicken Hair and the Hamster of Darkness opened up. That sounds goofy. It only made $1 million. But in the indie world market, in the art house market, the worst person in the world, the film that is eligible for the Oscar for Best International Film, that movie is doing really well in 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 indie releases it's outpacing drive my car which also has done quite well it made about a million dollars this week almost a million dollars it's at six million dollars worldwide and counting doing very well in north america i'm not quite sure why this movie caught the fancy of people any more than uh, drive my car but it's certainly doing that and doing quite well there is a hunger for adult films so even though death on the nile didn't set the world on fire it also didn't get great reviews so keep them coming because Adults will not come back until they can see that there are movies regularly in the theater, you know? Yeah, so I, I'm looking here at, uh, you know, you, you said, oh, no, $6 million is dead on arrival. And I thought, is it? But you in, know China, I, in China, in China, in China. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I went and I said, OK, how much did Death on the Nile make in France? $2 million in its opening weekend. France, of course, being what, what, what multiple of the U.S. or Chinese market? How, what does it compare to in terms uh, of no, size? No, I just went to another market that was a, a big cinema market just to see. Well, like, not okay. it's not remotely a big cinema market compared to the U.S. or China. Correct. Um, and then I went to Germany, 1.2. Then I went to look at what Murder on the Orient Express, the, the original film made, during its opening weekend in China. How much right. do you think it made? I have, it doesn't, it's a bad comparison because we don't know how many, 19, you know, we don't. 19 million dollars there you so, go well, I thought, like how, is it really that bad well i guess the answer is when the battle at lake shangjin makes 60 million dollars okay now this is where i was headed with this this line of thinking this week the battle at lake shangjin made 60 million dollars too cool to kill made 52 million dollars nice view these are all chinese titles nice view made 30 million dollars but then you look at what what was playing in china at that time when murder on the orient express opened mm -hmm. thor ragnarok was the number one movie 95 million dollars 
So there was very, you know, there's a big difference in, in the amount of film that's available to the Chinese market now. Well, it's good to see what movies are opening and what movies are playing and how they're doing. But of course, it's the time of year it was released. Maybe it wasn't Chinese New Year. This is the first Hollywood film in almost two years, practically, to get a decent release in China. The Woody Allen flick sure. opens up this week. But and comparing the opening in China to France is disingenuous at best. The best comparison you made and the smart comparison was to say, what did the original movie make in China? No matter what it was up against, we know that the original at least got attention. It opened to $19 million. People were interested. Whether they kept going to it or it didn't do well after that, I don't know. But they turned out for the opening Murder on the Orient Express. They did not turn out for this movie. There may be other factors for it, but that's the best comparison, I think. Saying, how did it do in China last time? Uh, much, much better. <laughs> Three times the size of the opening weekend. But again, uh, is it available on streaming? Are there pirated copies already in China? I don't think that movie is available. Is it available? I, I think that's a theatrical exclusive, right? That's a theatrical exclusive. Now, to give you some sense, you said it was the first film to, to get one, a, a one of the since, since since the Chinese New Year, and it was one of the first. Oh, films. correct. Yes, yeah, right. No Time to Die opened October 29th. It made eight million dollars. Right, but again, that was with massive restrictions because people could. You, again, that's also why you don't want to compare. You know, you want to yeah, remember that good, No Time to Die opened in China when a lot of cinemas were shut down and people couldn't go, or you know. So, oh, yeah. Is it opening on Disney Plus today? Uh, so, Death on the Nile will eventually open up on streaming on Disney Plus. I'm not sure when that date will be. It looks like to be announced today or something like that. I, I don't know what that means. Uh, but that's what justwatch.com points out to us. That's a website that you sent me to. It's not great for TV listings or old movies being shown on Turner Classic Movies, say. But if you're wondering about new releases and where the heck it's playing, is it on Amazon? Is it on Apple? Is it on? Is it on in theaters? Is it on theaters and HBO Max? Justwatch.com is a useful service for that limited thing. Current new TV shows, current movies, current stuff on streaming, you'll probably need to find out where it's playing and how if you go to that website. And it's not easy. For example, Amazon says, don't call us Amazon. We're, we're not. We're called Prime Video. They don't want you to call it Amazon or Amazon Prime. They want you to call it Prime Video, this generic name nobody knows. Here's the problem. My brother, older guy, not a big tech guy, not handy with, you know, the Google <laughs> or the inner tubes. <laughs> he, he loves the new TV show Reacher based on the character Jack Reacher from the novels by Lee Child and now his brother. Loves the character. Watched the movies with Tom Cruise, but he's totally wrong. Totally miscast. He's loving, loving the new episodes that have dropped on television. Every time he wants to watch it again, he goes through the apps, the channels that are listed on our smart TV. You know, you can see Peacock. You can see Paramount Plus, And don't get me started about Yellowstone. He still can't figure that out. You know, why is Yellowstone not on Paramount since it's a damn Paramount show? Anyway, he's looking for Reacher. He's looking at all those things. He knows it's not on a TV channel. He knows it's on a streamer, but he can't remember which one it is because he doesn't see Amazon. What it says is Prime, Prime, Prime Video. And he doesn't think of that as Amazon. So he calls me up and he says, well, where is it? Where is it? I go, it's on Amazon Prime. It's called Prime. He says, oh, oh, there it is. You know, he does not know that Prime Video means Amazon. So yeah. taking away the name that has instant recognizability all around the world, not so smart. There are but reasons I, for that, I'm sure. Like, I can't I'm, think I'm of sure a good one, of, one. I've never heard a good I'm one. I'm sure one of them is, hey, if we're Amazon, they're just going to keep asking for more money. We're one of the biggest companies around. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, the stars will never figure out you're one of the biggest companies in the world. Well, Amazon <laughs> does have a sort of a negative 
a negative connotation. It's not just, oh, they deliver my stuff quick. It's, oh, they're destroying the planet. And they have Correct. horrible, they treat workers horribly. So they do want to just, I had to go to, I had to go get uh, it, the, uh, some paperwork notarized for celluloid junkie the other day f- for the, the, uh, the government. Some, and while I was in the UPS store getting my, my paperwork notarized, uh, at least 10 people in the space of a half an hour came in with either Amazon returns or yeah, oh God, Amazon. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my God, what would this, what would this store be without Amazon? Yeah, that brings us to uh, streaming. We are already talking about streaming, and a couple shows got announcements. Um, all of them announced a new season <laughs> and their final season. But it's interesting. The marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Speaking of Amazon Prime, I'm not going to call it Prime because I wouldn't know what that means anyway. That is got a fifth and final season renewal from Amazon. Stranger Things, one of the biggest hits on Netflix, that too got a renewal for its fifth and final season. And Atlanta, the Danny. Gl- Donald Glover, not Danny Glover, the Donald Glover show on FX, that got a renewal for its fourth and final season. They said that show is going to end in its fourth season. So we knew for a while that these shows were getting big bumps in salary and pay. If they went beyond three seasons, people were going to be able to cash in. And you saw shows on the bubble cancel, cancel, cancel after the third season. They didn't want to go to a fourth or fifth season because there's or, nothing or, in it hey, for them. Hey, it's, it's incredibly popular. It's one of the most popular shows on our on our service. You're canceled because <laughs> it was it would just cost way too much money to produce. I do wonder, though, right now we are in a boom time for production. If you uh-huh. if if you had an idea of a guy coming into a room turning on the lights on and off on and off on and off like like flicking the lights on and off. Congratulations, you've got a series on <laughs> you know Fubu TV. Uh you know, it doesn't matter. So I do wonder if uh Rachel Brosnahan who's Mrs. Maisel, uh the actors and the creators of these shows are like, "You know what? We've had a 5-year run." We're going to start running out of material. We don't want to have to run five shows at once. And we could get paid a bigger amount by getting a deal where we go on, move on to the next thing. You're so Hollywood. What a cynical, absurd idea. I think the fact is that the economics are different now. They don't need 100 episodes, as you know, to be a hit yeah. in streaming. They have Stranger Things. How, what is it, like 50, 40, 50 episodes they probably made? Don't ask right? me. Something, probably eight or 10 episodes a season, right, for Stranger Things? You know, same thing yeah, for Mrs. Probably. Maisel. So they're tapping out at about 50 episodes, but that works for them. They've sold it all over. The, they have used it all over the world. Uh, they've got merchandise. They've got all sorts of tie-ins to these shows. And creatively, happily, people aren't forced to run it for 100 episodes just so everybody can break even and make money. They can say, you know what, Atlanta, I'm done. It really does, I'm done creatively after four seasons. We're able to follow the British model more and more, and the, perhaps we should call it the European model, where people are allowed to make the show they want to make. They want four episodes, and some of them will be an hour and 20 minutes long. They need nine episodes. Okay. Well, you know, they're able to be flexible and to also say, we don't need to pound this into the dirt. We've made a lot of money on Mrs. Maisel. We brought a lot, a lot of people to Amazon. Those 50 episodes will be around forever. People will love binge watching them from now until the end of time. That's cool. But we don't need to stretch it out to 90 episodes or 100 episodes just to get to syndication. So everybody's happy, I think. They went beyond three seasons because it was a big hit and it lured new subscribers. But the creative people, I think, are really in charge here. I think they're the ones who say, I don't think it's Netflix saying, we don't want a season six of Stranger Things. It's probably more 
the creative people and the uh, saying, look, we got these kids, they're going to grow up. We've told our story. We can end it well and end it right. And I think that's what we're seeing there. I hope that's the case. Uh, but we love streaming. We pay attention to it. We want to see those numbers every week. And yet we don't. We do not always see the numbers for streaming totals. I didn't see the numbers for movies this week that were released. So if you've got those numbers, you got access to them, share them with us. Yes, you can surreptitiously, anonymously send them to dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and in a deep throat, gravelly voice, <laughs> tell them to us. Uh, that's a all the president's men reference. I like to, to reference 70s movies. Um, you know, you could do that. That that uh, number is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. And if you didn't get any of that information, have no fear. I'll repeat it at the end of the program. <laughs> so we're looking at streaming numbers. Nielsen reports on Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, Hulu, Netflix, and Apple. This is just people watching on their smart TVs. It doesn't cover stuff that you watch on your laptop like I mostly do or your phone. And it's only the U.S. only, not even North America. I think it's just the U.S. But these are the numbers that we have. It is the info that we have. And this is for the week of January 17th through 23rd. So it's about a, a month gap from when this stuff airs to when we can get some numbers collated on them. And I, it's just for that week viewing. So I'm not quite sure why it takes a month to get to us. But Ozark dropped that week. It dropped on January 21st, season four, all seven episodes. And there's a show that probably should end it after season five or six at the most. Uh, that show was viewed 2.9 billion minutes of viewing in the U.S. on your smart TV for the Jason Bateman show Ozark. So that's a huge hit, almost hit 3 billion views. Obviously, they've got four seasons to watch. But Archive 81, that's the number two show on the chart. Over a billion minutes were watched. All eight episodes of that show dropped on January 14th. So just three days before this week. So it got some viewing last week. And then this week, over a billion minutes reviewed. It's just eight episodes. So you don't need four seasons or 10 seasons to score big. But the more episodes you have, the easier it is to rack up those points if people are watching them. So number one is Ozark. Number two is Archive 81. Number three is Cobra Kai. Season four dropped at the end of December, but still three weeks later, people are still binging it. Number four is Cheer. This show about cheerleaders, it has a really unpleasant backstory as far as the actors involved, but they're on season two. All nine episodes dropped like a week earlier, so January 12th. That show racked up almost 600 million minutes of view. And those top four shows, all from Netflix, as are is The Witcher, Too Hot to Handle, Afterlife, Stay Close, and Emily in Paris. Those are TV shows, new seasons, a mini series like Stay Close. So in the top 10 of original series, nine of them are from Netflix. One is from Disney Plus, and that's the book of Boba Fett. And during this week, when they racked up 580 minutes, it's a new show. There's only seven episodes in all. Four of them have been available. So there are three more episodes to come. They're dropping them one at a time. So we'll see that show continue to rack up views through the end of January. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was giving some extra attention to The Mandalorian as well. I'm sure those episodes are getting a boost. So that's what's happening in the original series. Acquired series is the usual suspects like NCIS, Coco Melon, Grey's Anatomy, Seinfeld, Criminal Minds, and so on. Oh, and How I Met Your Father debuted, and that's given a boost to How I Met Your Mother. That show got back onto the top 10 charts. 
uh, probably because of the launch of that new series, which has gotten pretty mixed reviews. But it did get renewed for a season two. Downton Abbey's on that list because the movie's coming up in May. And Gilmore Girls, one of my favorite shows, first four years of that series were great. Uh, a really good show. Didn't end well, unfortunately, because the talent wasn't involved. But the miniseries gave some closure. That shows in the top 10 of acquired series. You can see uh, how popular those libraries can be, how important. Well, I'm looking at all these shows, and I'm looking at all the movies that I have to watch. And <sighs> I haven't seen Ozark, okay? I nope. haven't seen uh, the second I've or seen third nothing. season. Not, none of these shows, none of them. And, and, and you know, I, I did get to see Brian Cranston in a play this week. So, oh, what'd you see? Pa power of, I saw two plays. One was The Power of Sale at the Geffen Theater, which starred uh, Brian Cranston and Amy Brenneman. It's a new play. About? Uh, I also saw Slave Play at the uh, Mark Taper Forum, which, uh, you know, I don't want to say controversial, but a hot, hot new play. Yes, uh, that's a Broadway. better way to put it. Uh, did, um, did you, what was, the, what was the Brian Cranston show about? It was about a professor. These were both, ironically, racially driven shows. It was about a professor. Ironically? Uh, play, uh, I, I don't know. Maybe coincidentally. Coincidentally. That's there the word go. I was looking for. Uh, a professor at Harvard who invites a white supremacist to speak on campus for his lecture series. And the- There's a, there's you know, a blow up. There's a controversy. There's a blow yeah. up, and then there's like lots of different things that go on, and it's kind of ha ha his unraveling. And I have to say, as you watch him on stage, you just go, "Yeah, he's he's." I get it. I get why he's he is the person he why. But he's it so took him a long time. It took him a long time before Malcolm in the Middle finally, you know, made him a star. And even then, all he got were comedy roles. So you know, that was late in life before Brian Cranston flowered and was able to show what he could do. So pretty cool. Um, and you know what else I saw this weekend, actually? Rickshaw mm -hmm. Girl. This was in the Berlin Film Festival, and it's from Bangladesh, about a girl whose father falls ill, so she has to take to the rickshaw, but only boys can pull rickshaws, so she becomes oh, a boy. A, that's and, interesting. Yeah. Uh, was it good? You know, uh, it was okay. It wasn't yeah. great. And how was Slave Play? Did you like that? Yes, I thought it was a little heavy-handed. It was kind of like... <laughs> I get it. Thank you for bringing me to the theater. Uh, I needed to get punched in the face for two solid hours. Thank you for that. <sighs> Sorry, Whitey. All right. So uh, I need to get punched in the face for confusing Regina Hall and Regina King. So hopefully I've made amends for that. But it is time for Big Deal, Big Whoop. Because it was not a big deal that I made that mistake. It's it's no. shows a little ignorance and uh, uh, hopefully not, but a little perhaps subtle prejudice or confusion on my part uh, that, you know, we all got to learn to work on. You know, think about it. People still mistake Jeff Daniels and Bill Pullman all the time. Oh, People do oh, it all oh, the time. I do I it. I thought it was Bill Pullman and the other guy. It was Bill Pullman and... Uh, Randy uh, the Quaid? Guy. No. The, uh, Bill Pullman is the one from Independence Day, right? Yes. I thought there was, a, there was another Bill. Bill Paxton. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah and, I get and them they, they all of them. Mary Stuart Masterson and Mary Elizabeth Masterson. You know, there's always a couple people with similar names that people get confused. So it's not just the people of color, but it does happen more often. And it is obnoxious. She's a big star, Regina Hall. I should know who she is. I just somehow had not seen any of her projects. I've seen almost everything Regina King has done, but I have not seen Scary Movie or the late seasons of Abby, uh, Ally McBeal. So it's just a, a bad situation. And I will rectify that in the future.
Well, I, I know you didn't think that was a big deal, but I do wonder if you think some of the, the stories in our Big Deal or Big Whoop segment are that now Big Deal or Big Whoop is our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines and entertainment and we tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. This first story, oh my goodness, if you are a trade publication in the film or television industry or a, a film entertain, you know, a, a film or entertainment industry newsletter, you had to write about this this next story this week ad nauseum. So the Academy Awards, they've announced their guidelines for people in attendance at the Oscars. You probably heard, heard about that, Michael, because as I just mentioned, everybody was covering it and people in the audience at the Oscars must show proof of being vaccinated and two recent negative tests, because that's simple. Now, if you're a nobody sitting in the balcony, you better put on a mask. You're going to have to wear a mask up there. We don't want you, you, the little people coughing down on us, okay? Now, if you're a big star sitting down front, well, you can forget about the mask. You don't have to wear a mask. And if you're on stage performing or presenting, don't worry about the masks at all. And forget about getting vaccinated. We're not even going to check. Just come on in. You know, it's only one of you. I mean, how hard could it possibly? You're not going to get everybody sick, are you? Anyway, this is a big deal or a big whoop. Well, it's a big whoop in the scheme of things, I get. It sets a bad tenor. You would think they'd say, whatever the standards are for going to a movie, when the Academy Awards happen, that's what we're going to do at the Oscars. That would be the smart thing to do. Or to follow the guidelines. There are different guidelines in California or perhaps LA for big events like this, as opposed to some smaller things. And they are following the LA guidelines, of course. They're not going against the guidelines, but they could do better than the guidelines. Clearly here, they just said, well, we want celebrity faces on the air, so we're not going to make them wear masks down below. Well, you people in the top, you better wear masks. That's obnoxious. But the people on stage performing and presenting, they need to be masked when they're backstage, and they need to be vaccinated more than anybody else. When you're sitting in the audience, not talking, just watching, basically sitting forward, that's less of a worry, just like if you go see a movie, than if you're backstage crowded in with the hundreds of crew and people who are back there trying to make sure you get on stage and can put on the show safely. They deserve safety. They deserve respect. But apparently all the crew in the back, to hell with them. We don't care because if we want you on stage, we don't want to have any kerfuffle where you might not be vaccinated. Perhaps this ridiculous exception came about because they said, well, we don't want to offend anybody that we want to bring on stage. So what? If they're not vaccinated, they don't need to present. You just tell them if you're not vaccinated, you're not coming on the show. We'd love to have you. You want to get if you don't want to get vaccinated, we'll ask someone else. Problem solved. But the crew backstage deserves the strict controls that you would see at a Broadway show or anywhere else where everybody is shoved in backstage together, breathing on each other. And to say that those people coming out on stage don't need to be vaccinated is insane. That's ridiculous. Well, ha have you seen Slave Play, by the way? And there's a reason I'm I have. That. I have. Yeah. And I, okay. I, so, so you know, they, they, that, yeah, uh, there's a lot of uh Audience, not audience participation, but but the characters are in the audience at times. At least in the version I saw, the the two characters uh, who play the, the the therapists are in the audience. Oh yeah, they weren't. Walking. When I saw it, they weren't in the audience. They were they were just you know came walked on stage. You know, okay. Yeah, okay. Well, it, it the taper allows you know it's very conducive to that. But the people sitting on the end of the aisles where they were walking up and down. They gave them the, the the theater gave them N95 masks. They said, "Can you please put this on because you're you're close to the uh, the actors who are going to be the, talking." Yeah, so yeah. that was that was wise and considerate and thoughtful. And the Oscars should be setting the standard for everyone. They want to have you know George Clooney's mug on camera when he's sitting in the audience. I can understand. You walk out on stage, you step up to the microphone, and you take off your mask. 
and then you talk. That's appropriate. You're singing and performing. Yes. You come out on stage or you're already on stage. Your mask is off. But when you're backstage, your mask is on and you need to be vaccinated. That's if I walk into a theater and have to show my vax card, why the heck should they be at the Oscars not doing that? They had an opportunity to just be smart, to go beyond what the LA standards require and instead, instead a standard for the entire country. And instead they just look like, you know, idiots who don't care about their own crew. Well, speaking of, uh, People who don't care about their own crew. What about Jeff Zucker? That was a horrible transition. But anyway, yeah, right. we're talking. what we're talking about is Jeff Zucker, who isn't the only one out of a job. About two weeks after he left CNN, one of the t- company's top communications execs is out as well. Allison Golist has been men- mentored by Zucker since their days at NBC decades ago. When their romantic relationship came to light amidst the Chris Cuomo firing, both she and Zucker faced some blowback. Golist apparently lied about when their relationship began, if widespread comments from staffers and big names like Katie Couric are to be believed. Now, Golist is gone, too, though insiders pointed to her cooperation with Governor Andrew Cuomo as one major factor as well. Golist briefly worked with him and leaked emails. I guess they show her readily agreeing to Cuomo's requests on which topics he'd like to discuss when appearing on air. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big deal. It seemed weirdly sexist that they that Zucker was fired, but she was alive. Well, she's just the girl, you know. She like like why would she not be out too at the same time? No, they it needed was, to find something that would be like, no, nope, well, it's for cause. She had she had she, she had for cause. They had not shared their relationship. They both admitted that publicly that they should have reported it and they didn't. So they had for cause to fire her. But nothing new came up. They, they're not officially saying the reason they fired her. These are just leaked defenses of why they fired her now. But at the time, he was out for simply not having detailed. Why wouldn't she be out too? She didn't tell them what their relationship was. And it seemed weirdly sexist. Like, oh, well, he's the guy. He should have told her, like, why, why isn't she fired? So now they're finally firing her and it's all a mess and staffers are unhappy, which I don't understand because there's like 17 things wrong that have happened here. But anyway, she's out too. And to defend themselves, they're saying, well, you know, she did this with Cuomo to which her people say, you know what? This happens all the time on television. People have big names are coming on and you talk to them about what you're going to discuss. It's like, yeah, sort of. You go on to, you know, Conan O'Brien. Yes, they have people who interview you and talk about where you got this anecdote to share. They lay it all out. You're going to be on a, you're a political person. You're coming on a show. Yeah, there's a little bit of a negotiation or an understanding about what you're going to discuss. But this was Governor Cuomo saying, I want to talk about this, this, and this. And she said, you got it. It's like, that's a little different. (laughs) That's him dictating what he wants covered. And her saying, oh, sure. That's a little shadier. I've never done that. So, you know, why CNN would do that, too. Maybe TV has looser standards, but that doesn't sound wildly defensible or great. Nonetheless, I feel like CNN is just trying to grab at straws to explain it ain't just about the relationship, but that would be plenty. I think that uh, that some of the people uh, at CNN were saying, yeah, he was kind of trying to say, here's what I the information I need to get out. No, 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 no. It wasn't that at all. No, this wasn't even about that. This wasn't about I want to make sure we talk about mass Had nothing to do with that. No, it was just the relationship, the idea that he was telling her, I want to talk about A, B, and C on the air. Make sure you cover these. And she said, okay, that's the problem, not the actual subjects that they were talking about. But this isn't just one example. This was happening all the time. And again, she worked for him, which means maybe you're not the one who should be negotiating with him when you're talking about, you know, 
getting him on the air and stuff like that. Why are you carrying water for him? You're the top communications exec at CNN. You don't need to be dealing with whatever's happening on a particular primetime show. That's a job for other people. You shouldn't be in the middle of that. And you worked for him. So you should be recusing yourself in the first place from that sort of you know, back and forth. Nonsense. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I've actually heard uh, recently a lot of complaints uh, and I thought, oh, it's just us little people who have to do this. But no, I'm hearing from like big outlets. Like, I think the only place I haven't heard it from is somebody from the New York Times saying, yes, I've had to do this. Uh, and actually, I take that back. I have heard somebody from the New York Times say it, but it was a, a you know, a, a, a very junior reporter at the New York Times. And it's, Everybody we interview, no matter who they are these days, they're like, can you send me the questions? Can you send me the questions? I've, and I'm I've like, never had that. I've never done that in my why? entire life. I've, Everybody's no, complaining about it. That's not true. It. That's not true because I've never done that in my entire life. So why anybody else would have to do it is ridiculous. You're not a real reporter if you send the questions in advance. Sometimes people have said, I'm not available. I'd like to do it by email. That's a different issue. And some people can just say, I only want to do it by email. But I'm a wimpy entertainment guy. And I've written for outlets big and small, and we have never, ever said, here are all the, these are the questions we're going to ask, and these are only the questions we're going to ask. No. Obviously, they're pushing a new movie or book or TV show. You're going to talk about that. They don't expect you to talk about their childhood or some scandal from 30 years ago. That's just understood. But I've never done it. I don't know any other journalist who's ever done it. I've never done it once. So, you know, that, that that is not a trend. So if there's some big person trying to push back or something, I'm sure TV has different standards than, than your own. But the New York Times sends out questions in advance. That reporter should be fired. If there's a reporter at the New York Times who agreed to send out their questions in advance and also implicitly agreeing that they wouldn't ask anything else except this, they should be fired because that is not journalistic ethics. The New York Times would not allow such a thing to happen. And so you find the name of that person, share it with us, and we'll find out what happens at the New York Times, because that should not be done, certainly not at the New York Times or any outlet with any self-respect. Well, I'm sure, uh, you know, journalists give write us, to us. Give us specific you... examples. Yeah, don't tell me you've heard. Oh, how about show, this? I'll email you all of the requests that I've had. No. Requests. We're, we're, we're talking emails. the New York Times, the Wall Street Journals, and CNN. We're not talking, well, but, you but know, it's, so, so Michael's I'm a little our podcast. Uh, so, but... Think about it. You're saying you're not a journalist if you do it. Well, so no, uh, you're. Uh, well, I'm just saying, A, there's a difference between talking to exhibitors for, for celluloid junkies, no offense, uh, but we don't do We've had people on our show. We've never said, here are the questions in advance, and no, no one's ever we've asked. Never done that. And no one's no, ever yeah, asked. Actually, that is true. On this, and we've, had, we've had reporters, and we've had people in the industry, people who have reputations and things to worry about and deal with. It's not like the, the they're unimportant is, people. Uh huh. The, the irony is, uh, and this is a common kind of gripe. Uh, amongst trade uh, reporters is that the pe that the people usually asking it and who are more concerned are not are the, the actual important. interview subjects. It's the darn right. publicists. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Now, anyway, Spotify, you know, we, we've been talking about them a lot. They are sticking with Joe Rogan, right? I mean, we've talked about that. And they're doing that despite waves of bad news regarding the podcaster's past and present comments and future comments, I'm sure. Uh, now, in order to distract from that drip, drip, drip of boorish and racist comments, Netflix did Spotify a solid, actually, this week. They announced they are going to be sticking with Dave Chappelle. Yes, the streamer has lined up four more specials from Chappelle. What? Four more yeah, not four more stand-up shows, okay, by him, and not, sadly, for four documentaries on, like, say, I don't know, 
brave transgender heroes of the black community. Instead, Chappelle is producing and hosting four stand-up specials by other acts. Chappelle will introduce the shows and then let the spotlight shine on veteran artists like Earthquake and Danell Rawlings. So, big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a, it's a big whoop, of course, in the scheme of things, but it's awfully smart. It was probably in the works beforehand and is not part of some large scheme, but if you wanted to just put that problem behind you, having Dave Chappelle on Netflix, but not really doing his stuff, but just introducing other acts, but having him back on the streamer in an uncontroversial way, this is kind of perfect. You don't have to worry what he's going to say. He's just introducing these guys. You don't have to worry about people boycotting. It's not really a Dave Chappelle special. It's a Donnell Rawlings special. So it's kind of ideal. And they couldn't have mapped this out better if they had planned it. The one interesting thing about all this is uh, Joe Rogan. Uh, the New York Times is reporting it was not a $100 million deal to bring Joe Rogan to Spotify. It was a $200 million deal covering three and a half years. And everybody's pretty happy with it still. <laughs> Even though well, that makes all the difference. Yeah, it's $200 million. Good Lord. You know, uh, I, I, I love this, this next thing that we're going to cover. It's, of course, it's in Inside Baseball, right? You want to tell people what Inside Baseball well, is? Well, Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and, more importantly, how they affect you. And today we're talking about Paramount Plus. We're really talking about CBS Viacom. They had a quarterly earnings report, and they just dropped a lot of news, as people will. Everybody does this every quarter. But in this case, there was a lot of significant news coming from CBS Viacom and what they're doing. Number one is rebranding. What's happening there? Well, okay, before I get into that, here's how this is going to affect Michael. Um, his brother is going to call him up and say, hey, Michael, I can't find CBS All Access. Where the heck is it? <laughs> because, <laughs> You're right. <laughs> because uh, I don't get it. Why do they keep changing things? It's so stupid. <laughs> You're starting at the, at, the, at the end of where, well, I don't want to say the end, but where Matthew Bellany left off because he actually said, and I'm going to, in his newsletter, he said, it's like Viacom CBS Chair Sherry Redstone and CEO Bob Baggish whipped out the big media 2022 handbook, flipped to the Netflix for beginners section and started checking the boxes that <laughs> analysts and investors all want checks these days. Number one, steer your content to streaming to juice subscribers. Check. And he goes, and the last one he said was, you know, if nothing else works, change your name. So instead of like having 50 different, you know, there's Showtime, there's CBS right. All Access, there's, uh, you know, some other, you know, Paramount Plus, they say, you know what, what if we just put everything into one and then just call ourselves Paramount Global? Since let's face it, Paramount's that, been around for a hundred something years. Like maybe people will remember that. And what Viacom CBS does not roll off the tongue. It's like, no, we're, we're sitting around going, why don't you just call yourself Paramount? That's what everybody, right? Didn't they have a different name for their streamer at first, Stephen? Weren't they afraid to call it Paramount? Or they were thinking they were I, afraid they were, to call They it? were looking for another name. And then they went, you know what? We should just call ourselves Paramount. <laughs> yeah, pretty good so idea. So they're renaming. So forget Viacom, CBS. They're going to stick with Paramount. That was smart. They're bringing Congratulations on doing that about 10 years late. <laughs> Not 10 years late, but it seemed an obvious change. And thank God they're doing it. Bringing home their franchises. Everybody's doing this. They had signed stuff away. We talked about Paramount, you know, signing off uh, reruns of Yellowstone for streaming are going to Peacock, NBC Universal's thing. So instead of Yellowstone, the biggest hit Paramount's had in years on terms of television, instead of that show coming to Paramount Plus when it's streaming, it airs on 
Peacock. So you can watch it on Paramount on your cable system if you have that still or your on-demand TV system. I have YouTube TV. You can find the Paramount channel there and you can watch Yellowstone. You can also DVR episodes. You can catch up on them. There may even be an on-demand option. But if you want to watch it on streaming, you got to go to Peacock which is really confusing, drives my brother nuts. He's like, where do I go to find Yellowstone? I'm like, you go to YouTube TV because that's where it's airing. He's like, don't, just tell me where to go. I don't want to hear. I don't know. I don't care. Just tell me where to go. Go to YouTube TV and your DVR. That's where you'll find Yellowstone. He's like, okay, fine. <laughs> so now, he doesn't want to worry now, about corporate mergers. He just wants to know saying, where the hell to go. You're saying that they're bringing everything back, right? So right. That's so, they are. so Yellowstone, they got they got to wait. They got to wait because that's been signed away for years to Peacock. When they did that show, they weren't thinking about streaming, and they signed those rights away. And everybody has done something like that. But now they're all going to let those deals expire, and when they can, bring that stuff back into the fold. Yeah. Now that's number four on Matt Bellany's uh, newsletter. Oh, really? Here. <laughs> yes. Uh, and and his newsletter is, by the way, over at Puck. It's Puck News, and and you'll see everybody's newsletters there. Right. One uh, of the shows the, coming you, back is South Park. That will make its home at Paramount Plus. Yeah. He, Beavis he says, and Butthead. Throw out your loot. Well, that's actually now you're talking about consolidate your offering on one digital interface. That's number three. Number four is throw out your lucrative pay one home video revenue. So you're 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 getting two of them down in one yeah, one go. Yeah, that's right. They make a lot of money licensing South Park out to other people. But if they want to build up Paramount Plus, they want that to be the home of South Park. It's also going to be the home of Beavis and Butthead. That's moving from Comedy Central to Paramount Plus. And both those shows are getting like new episodes or movies, you know, that they're going to do on on the streamer. They're also, I think, doing a feature film for one or both of them, you know, that they might put into theaters. I think South Park might be having another feature film. Anyway, they're like, give us more content. Give us more content and we'll bring it all on Paramount+. Plus. You talked about windows, of course. That brings us to theatrical windows and the pay one window, which was a term I had almost never heard over our past 10 years of doing showbiz sandbox explain what the pay one window is it is the window after the theatrical release so the pay the so first window the first the window. first window and that's why it's pay one now it used to be called an output deal what what that means is you get a, a guarantee you go to HBO and they say, okay, we will buy all the films that you have Warner Brothers we'll buy them all slate. right on this on, particular on, yeah. slate. On this particular slate, from from time A to time B, we'll, or time A to time Z, we'll, we'll buy them, uh, and and when the deal expires, we'll talk about renewing. And what that allows you to do as a studio or financier is go to a bank and say, "Hey, listen, you know, if you give me money to make these movies, I already got like twenty million dollars, so you know, I'm HBO is going to pay for these things." That's right. And, uh, back in the day, HBO did exactly that. That was the main content they had on their channel. It was movies from other people. Other people made movies. They licensed them and put them on their channel. They didn't wait till the movies hit theaters. They paid for them in advance. And so the studios got a lot right. of net financing for their films. They could say, lay off a lot of their budget. They'd also make money by then after that pay one window. First, it went theatrical to HBO. Then what was the pay two window? Was it cable? Uh, yeah. Well, no, yeah. Cable, uh, no, the video on demand and. Right. And, and so uh, these things change premium. all the time because there wasn't always these options available. Right. So once upon a time, it would go from theatrical to, you know, DVD and VHS. And Correct. then it would go to HBO or, or and then, then it would be HBO and TV. Right. So these windows change all the time, but the pay one window is the first place where the person finds a home. You hit the theaters and then you come to, in this case, Paramount Plus. They have the Star Trek movie franchise. 
They've greenlit a new one with Chris Pine, but not Quentin Tarantino. But Chris Pine and his crew will be coming back to boldly go where no one has gone before. They'll get a theatrical release and then be found on Paramount Plus, which will be the new pay one TV window for all of Paramount's theatrical releases starting in 2024. So they've made deals already for 2022 and 2023, but starting in 2024, you'll see a movie in a theater and then a certain number of days later, it will appear on Paramount Plus. Maybe 45 days later, maybe longer if it's a big hit. 45 days seems to be the magic number that most people are lighting on. Yeah, and that's number six, actually, on on Matt's um, you know list here. He says, most important, unleash an unholy machine gun spray of new content, preferably spinoffs and sequels of existing franchises, and then spinoffs and sequels of those spinoffs and sequels, and so on. So I think you're pointing out, you, you guys think a lot alike. Well, we'll have to see what happens over at Warner Brothers. They have got multiple streamers. They have CNN Plus, or whatever they call it. They have HBO Max, and they have... Uh, there's something else. I don't know. Oh, Discovery. They have Discovery. And they're bringing them all together. They might com- They might bundle them. Or they might just say, hey, here's one big, one big streamer. And you can click on this channel or that channel and watch all Olympics if you're at Peacock or watch all this. But in this case, maybe they will have three separate streamers that you can get individually. And it's cheaper to bundle them together. And so they won't necessarily put them all into one streamer. But at Paramount... They've got, of course, Paramount, and they've got BET and some other channels that you can purchase, including Showtime. Showtime is their big property outside of Paramount+. Plus. That's been always in the shadow of HBO, but they've got good shows. they got Yellow Jacket. they got other stuff. And Showtime is, you know, getting a lot of traction lately. And now those shows, they said, why do we have them on a separate streamer? Instead of just bundling them together, which they also offer, they're like, yeah, you know what? You get Paramount+, Plus. you pay a little extra, you can watch all the originals on Showtime. So if there's a show on Showtime that they make, it's coming to Paramount Plus. So right now I pay $5 for Paramount Plus, I think. That's what I pay to watch Paramount Plus with ads. If I want to charge up, I can pay an extra 7 bucks a month. Now I'm paying $12 a month to get access to all the Showtime shows. If I want to pay $15 a month, I can get access to Showtime and all the Paramount Plus stuff without ads. So that's equaling what you pay for Netflix and HBO. 15 bucks a month you get something equivalent to Netflix and HBO, no ads. 12 bucks a month, you can get Paramount Plus and Showtime, or five bucks a month, you can access just Paramount Plus. So it's more a tier system rather than having three separate apps, but Showtime still stands on its own. But I bet it's just a matter of time before Showtime is just blended into Paramount Plus. Why have that standalone name? Except is there still value in it? I guess they've got it I on guess cable. If you can get people to pay for it. You know, if you can get people to pay for it separately and they're willing to, why not? So they did basically everything that your friends had on their list. They did everything I thought they should do. We've been calling for a lot of this for a while. It just makes sense. So I'm assuming Wall Street said, great, finally, they're getting serious about streaming. That's all we care about. We want streaming numbers. So they must have reacted with glee and pumped up the stock once this announcement was made. Oh, absolutely. It totally went down 20%. (laughs) why that is if they hadn't announced all this surely wall street would have said you're a disaster why aren't you embracing streaming why aren't you spending money on streaming instead they did everything you could ask for i don't know where they went wrong here i mean it's stuff they could have done sooner Uh, yeah i think that they spent too much money no but this is fantastic they're, they're, they're finally, oh, wait a second. They are but, finally doing it. They're the last ones. But why that would make it worse stock than it was yesterday doesn't make any sense to me. 
Yeah, this is know. just, you know, people reacting willy-nilly to that day's headlines rather than thinking long-term. Long-term, clearly this is the smart thing to do. It makes sense. Are they spending too much money or too little? I don't know. But nothing they did there is a bad thing as such. So I don't get it. I don't think their stock should have gone down. But we know their streaming numbers. They've got 56 million subscribers worldwide all in. That includes Paramount Plus, Showtime, BET, and so on. Paramount Plus alone that's over half of it. That's 32.8 million subscribers. Soon we'll also want a breakdown of how many of them are premium subscribers that pay $12 a month to get bundles of Paramount and Showtime or 15 bucks a month to get no ads. But right now, those people, at least in North America, are paying at least $5 a month to Paramount. They're getting at least $150 million a month for people to access Paramount+. Plus. Did you know that, uh, and maybe you don't know this about me, Michael, but I'm a psychic, actually, when it comes to, uh, you know, the media. I'm, I'm well, you've done, a few re- you've done a few readings for me, and you've gone to the other side to talk to relatives of mine who were deceased, but I did not know you were psychic. Yeah, I can actually already see the news stories being written in the future about how all of this bundling of streaming services is costing as much as cable. <laughs> it's like $20 for Netflix, another $15 for the bundle of Disney, another $15 for HBO and all of its stuff, another $12 for Paramount Plus. I'm sure I'm forgetting a few. And then the next thing you know, you turn around, you got the YouTube TV at $60. Oh my gosh, I'm already up to $100. You want to know why cable costs so much? You just figured it out. <laughs> exactly. Though they are creating a lot more content than we ever had in cable, aren't they? Or are they? I think they are. No, we know we're at. We know we're still creating a lot more new TV shows thanks to FX and uh, their their tracking of peak television, which hasn't happened yet. Do you know what? Do you want to know? Uh, Peacock. I forgot about Peacock. My kids knew that we had Peacock. I said, "Well, how did we don't have Peacock? I don't pay for Peacock." They said, "No, but we have cable. It's free. So yeah, <laughs> it's free oh, cool. if you have cable." I said, "It uh, is." And they said, yes. Yeah. So we just logged in. I said, "Wait, you have a login for the cable?" They said, "No, no, no. We just use yours." I said, "Wait." You know my login? (laughs) Yeah, and Dad, why are you on that app, that other app? Anyway, anyway, that's a different story. It's a different story. Um, Anyway, so it's time for the obituaries. Oh, it is? People are are dying. I know, I know. I know P.J. O'Rourke. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay, start there. Well, P.J. O'Rourke, I mean, certainly... I guess he was like a humorist, right? Like he said, satire. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he was a satirist. He, he, he went from the, you know, super left to the super right in a way, though he would consider himself a renegade. A lot of people like to see themselves as iconoclastic, but he was pretty consistently conservative uh, towards the end of his life. He died at the age of 74. He went from National Lampoon and Rolling Stone to the conservative Weekly Standard in 60 Minutes, where he offered the right wing counterpoint to, you know, somebody else. He was the counterpoint to someone else's point. Uh, it was. Who was it? It was, uh, I can't remember. Anyway, he enjoyed bestsellers and he proved to be the conservative liberals could deal with. Thanks to appearing on NPR's game show. Wait, wait, don't tell me for many years. So he's sort of the cuddly conservative, you know, uh, but that, that was PGO work. A uh, number of other people in the industry died. Oscar winning film editor, David Brenner died at the age of 59. He died pretty unexpectedly. He was in the midst. He'd been cutting the avatar sequels for two years now for director James Cameron, working on them deeply. He also worked on uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movie, Independence Day for Roland Emmerich, and multiple superhero flicks for Zack Snyder, including the expanded cut of Justice League. But he's probably best known for working with director Oliver Stone. 
He began as an assistant on Platoon, Salvador, and Wall Street, where he was mentored by Claire Simpson, good for her, and then he went on to do editing on nine movies for Oliver Stone, including Born on the Fourth of July, which is Oliver Stone's best film, and which won him the Oscar for editing alongside Joe Hutchinson. So uh, sad to see, but a, a, a great career. You know, also sad to see with Seymour Fishman, uh, you know, kind of an independent distributor uh, known for picking up the films that people wouldn't ordinarily pick up uh, documentaries like Sherman's March. I think uh, I think he even did. Uh, yeah, he did. Uh, Spike Lee's student film, Joe's Bedside Barbershop, which was like a, a short. Obviously. We, cut, we heads. cut heads. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, he was a, a key figure. I mean, he helped get Sherman's March made. You know, he helped him get final fans, you know, uh, final financing for that uh, for that movie. So he was really a key figure. I figured, you know, being the uh, exhibitor guy that you are, that you would be all over that sort of thing. Yeah, no, I was. Uh, I thought, oh, well, first of all, he's seventy nine. I didn't know that. I thought okay. he was younger. And Joe's Bedsty Barbershop. We cut heads. Not technically a short. It's sixty minutes long, and it got a theatrical release, so it qualifies as a feature film. Uh, not that you meant anything by that, but just to clarify that, it's not a short short. Uh, Fishman also distributed Cheryl Dunye's The Watermelon Woman, Jan Svankmeyer's Alice, a retelling of Alice in Wonderland, and Michael Apted's Twenty Eight Up, and ultimately the entire Up series. He brought that to the U.S. and helped get it a lot of attention. That is a landmark work for sure. And those are, if you think about that, Spike Lee. Sherman's March, Cheryl Dunier, uh, Jan Swankman. Those are key films for women, queers, black people, the art house circuit, and the entire documentary world. So Seymour Fishman had a big impact in his career. Unfortunately, he had a big impact, but he died too young. UK music DJ and pioneer Jamal Edwards. He died very unexpectedly at the age of 31. I'm not sure why or how, but he was a DJ and he performed as Smoky Bars. And then he launched the YouTube channel or platform, I guess, SBTV, Smoky Bars TV. And that proved really popular in the UK. And he helped give a big boost to a lot of artists in the grime genre. That's a subgenre of music in the UK. And he helped promote acts like Ed Sheeran and Jesse J. He was really just getting started. And he was doing lots of stuff beyond music. He was promoting mental health care, helping refurbish youth centers and more, all while racking up more than a billion views and proving a big influence in the good sense of the word in the music industry in the UK. So that was a real shame. Also passing away was Luster Bayless at the age of 84. And if this name does not ring a bell, it's because she was a costumer. He, he was a costumer, Luster Bayless. I don't know why, he, I don't know why I always assumed that Luster Bayless was a, was a she. I, I think you're why. assuming it because it's a costumer. Well, I think no, it's I mean, the idea that costumers might be women, perhaps I'm thinking. So he also did a little costuming, you know, co costume design, but mostly as a costumer. So his most famous client was John Wayne, the Duke. He outfitted the Duke in a dozen films late in the actor's career, including True Grit, The Shootist. Wayne liked his work and said, hey, I, I want you to do all my movies. He says, I got six lined up. And so Bayless said, sure. And he went on his own and worked for the Duke and did those movies. He also worked on Mary Poppins, Apocalypse Now. He even picked out the hat. Robert Duvall War in Lonesome Dove. That's kind of a cool thing. But Bayless's lasting contribution to the industry began in the 1970s when he broke away from the studios, partially on the urgings of John Wayne, and formed the independent American Costume Company in 1977. Its first gig was the miniseries The Sackets with Tom Selleck and a bunch of others, and soon included everything from Little House on the Prairie to The Thornbirds to Back to the Future, James Cameron's Titanic, and The Natural, right up to Django Unchained and the new HBO series Perry Mason. So this guy's been around for decades. He's done it all, and now he's gone. But his impact lives on. And, uh, you know, will live on. 
for our, our show next week, which is why you want to subscribe to us in iTunes, the Google Podcast Store, now that I know the name of it, the Google Podcast Directory, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere they give podcasts away for free, you can usually find us. And please, in any of those podcast aggregators where you can rate and review the show, please do. It helps us out when you do that. Links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode can be found on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find those ways to subscribe to us, or you can follow us at Twitter is our handle on uh, on at Twitter. No, it's at Showbiz Sandbox, not at Twitter. It's at Showbiz Sandbox on Twitter. That's our handle. And Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can like our page. We're also, of course, reachable via email. Dirt at Showbiz Sandbox.com is our email address. That's D I R T at Showbiz Sandbox.com. Or you can call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888 567 Sand. That's 888 567 7263. Again, all of this information is on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT, and they can be found on their own website, who is mgmt.com. Michael Giltz has a new website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's, oh, and I saw Summer of Soul, and it was very good.com. Oh, it's a good movie, yeah. But you know what? That's really just too much to remember. So if you're really looking for Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry, why not head on over to just, just what is it, michaelgiltz.com? It's where That's all right. of your work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. <laughs>